Welcome to Spark My Muse, everyone. This is your host, Lisa DeLay, and this is Soul School Lesson 154. Words are contagious. One of the things I'm going to do today is read from the excellent book by Thomas Merton called New Seeds of Contemplation. On page 80 in this book is a wonderful little entry called Learn to Be Alone. It goes from 80 to page 83, and I'm going to read it to us in this time that some of us are encountering right now in world history is the COVID-19 virus outbreak. And many of us are at home trying to stay safe. And uh, this is an excellent time to understand the gifts of solitude in a better way. Now, not everybody has solitude. I know I don't have it because my kids are home all the time and I actually have sort of a lack of solitude. But this kind of solitude that I'm speaking of is really an internal solitude. Even if you can get away into the bathroom for a few minutes, you can find some of this kind of inner solitude for yourself or you can find it in the midst of chaos. And some of us are very isolated and actually quite physically alone during these times. Thomas Merton's wisdom is very apropos for us. We can learn so much from his writings. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk who wrote in the 1950s and the very early 60s and was a hermit for much of his vocational life. His writings are still widely read and appreciated. Before I get into that, I also wanted to speak about the kind of language we use around this time in our history, we've been handed certain words that serve not just as frameworks, but I think also as cages for us. We've been handed words that we use a lot without considering what they mean and the kind of frameworks that they set up for our thinking about the time that we're going through right now. There's words like lockdown, quarantine, pandemic, shelter in place. We hear face mask, virus. We hear Chinese Wuhan virus, which is inappropriate. And these words convey very certain meanings to them. We hear something like social distancing when we're actually talking about a time when we need to be communicating better and giving each other social support. What we need is proximity distancing, but we need each other more than ever. The words we use should be conveying that we need to safeguard ourselves and be vigilant, protect ourselves, but also support each other and be unified. I think sometimes we're given these words that we use without any thoughtfulness. And what do they elicit? Usually fear. Usually they further isolate us. Usually they don't promote us reaching out to help others in any sort of real way. And I think that makes us responsible to choose better words. We should talk about proximity distancing, not social distancing. We're not allowed to gather with a whole bunch of people because of the health and safety issues, but certainly we can reach out with more phone calls, with more letters, with Zoom time or Skype. And I've been doing that on a regular basis each evening. I've been trying to reach out to people maybe that I haven't even contacted in a while and make sure they're okay or just reach out with a comforting word. And in return, I get so much out of that myself. Instead of lockdown or shelter in place, 
we might call it time at home or season of staying at home. We don't have to use words that frighten us and put us into a fight or flight or freeze response. We can use words that are about health and safety and getting through this together. Without cooperation and unity during these times, they become very dangerous times. They become times when people just think of themselves and leave others behind. They become times when the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and get sick and die. They become times when the people who have the privileges and the means will hoard and the people who don't have those means will suffer without medicine, without resources, food. And that is beneath us. That is beneath our human potential. That is beneath what God wants for God's children. And I just feel in my heart that we've been set up during this season of suffering and trial, sometimes by the words that have been propagated and proliferated. We've been set up with these very inappropriate limiting words that limit our framework and limit what we can do. Instead, we need bigger words that encompass life-giving, generative responses in our hearts, but in our civic duties to each other. This is a time we must be very good citizens, and we must be good to ourselves, giving ourselves the chance to recuperate from the emotional weight of what's happening in our world and to our neighbors to the vulnerable and the elderly. We must give ourselves time to process it and have our emotions catch up with some of the realities of the situation going on. But at the same time, we must really be careful to nurture each other and realize that we're all struggling together. We're all human and vulnerable together. And this isn't a time to see how we can tear each other down or pump fear into the collective consciousness. Or uh, when someone makes a mistake, point it out and make sure everybody knows how foolish and stupid that decision or that announcement was. Those are all things that can happen from time to time. But in the time of emergency and crisis, drawing out other, other people's faults to make a fool out of them, to make them look stupid and weak, is not as important as supporting, socially supporting, emotionally supporting those people who need it most. If you have a certain amount of energy to spare, don't use it on criticism. Don't use it on tearing people down or fighting and disagreeing and, and throwing out um, comments and remarks that are mainly complaints and disgust. We don't have that kind of energy to spare or that kind of energy to waste. Those types of emotions are understandable, but they need to be set on the back burner while we try to care for those that need it most. If you can donate food, donate food. If you can sew a mask, sew a mask. If you can reach out and call someone, do that. If you can run an errand for an elderly person, do that. Contact your food bank, contact your church nearby and say, how can I help? There's always someone who could use some help, even if it's just a phone call, even if it's just running to the pharmacy for them. If you're immunocompromised, if you're struggling with your health, 
stay safe because your health matters. Whether you're going to infect someone really, really matters. Perhaps you'll be listening to this at a later date and you'll wonder, why the concern? What's going on? But we're not quite at the peak or the halftime of this COVID situation right now. We're seeing thousands of people die a day and no real end in sight. Certainly there'll be an end and there'll be a peak and we'll get through this, I have no doubt. But the suffering doesn't have to be as bad as it is because we need to be in this together. And I think words are cages and frameworks and can limit us or liberate us. And I hope that you will take the time to question, what words am I using? What words could I use better? And how can I add life and generosity to the interactions that I have? Moving on to Thomas Merton. I'm so pleased to read this to you because Thomas Merton is full of hidden gems. And this New Seeds of Contemplation is one of those wonderful books you can come back to again and again and again. Abbey of Gethsemane has printed this one in 1961. And I'll read it to you now. Physical solitude, interior silence. The real recollection are all morally necessary for anyone who wants to lead a contemplative life. But like anything else in creation, they are nothing more than means to an end. And if we do not understand the end, we will make a wrong use of the means. We do not go into the desert to escape people, but to learn how to find them. We do not leave them in order to have nothing more to do with them, but to find out the way to do the most good. But this is only a secondary end. The one end that includes all others is the love of God. How can people act and speak as if solitude were a matter of no importance in the interior life? Only those who have never experienced real solitude can glibly declare that, quote, it makes no difference, unquote, and that only solitude of the heart really matters. One solitude must lead to the other. However, the truest solitude is not something outside you, not an absence of someone or of sound around you. It is an abyss opening up in the center of your own soul. I'm going to take a second to mention that Merton heavily uses gendered male pronouns, and that was his way. And he was also many times speaking to male monks. But for my purposes, I'm going to try to uh, use neutral pronouns if possible, because this really helps me understand it better. And this abyss of interior solitude is a hunger that will never be satisfied with any created thing. The only way to find solitude is by hunger and thirst and sorrow and poverty and desire. And the one who has found solitude is empty as if that person had been emptied by death. I'm going to read that one more time because it is a really profound paragraph. The only way to find solitude is by hunger and thirst and sorrow and poverty and desire. And the one who has found solitude is empty as if the person has been emptied by death. This person has advanced beyond all horizons 
There are no directions left in which this person can travel. This is a country whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. You do not find it by traveling, but by standing still. Yet it is this loneliness that the deepest activities begin. It is here that you discover act without motion, labor that is profound repose, vision in obscurity and beyond all desire, a fulfillment whose limits extend to infinity. Although it is true that the solitude is everywhere, there is a mechanism for finding it that has some reference to actual space, to geography, to physical isolation from the towns and the cities of people. There should be at least a room or some corner where no one will find you and disturb you or notice you. You should be able to untether yourself from the world and set yourself free, loosing all the fine strings and strands of tension that bind you by sight, by sound, by thought, and by the presence of others. Quote, But thou, when thou shalt pray, enter into thy chamber, having shut the door, pray to thy father in secret. Unquote. That's a quote from Jesus. Once you have found such a place, be content with it, and do not be disturbed if a good reason takes you out of it. Love it and return to it as soon as you can, and do not be too quick to change it for another. City churches and sometimes quiet and peaceful solitudes, caves of silence, where a person can seek refuge from the intolerable arrogance of the business world. One can be more alone sometimes in a church than in a room in one's own house. At home, one can sometimes be routed out and disturbed, and one should not resent this, for love sometimes demands it. It's a great sentence there. But in these quiet churches, one remains nameless, undisturbed in the shadows, where there is only a few chance anonymous strangers among the vigil lights and the curious, impersonal postures of the bad statues. The very tastelessness and shabbiness of some churches makes them greater solitudes, though churches should not be vulgar. Even if they are, as long as they are dark, it makes little difference. Let there always be quiet, dark churches in which people can take refuge, places where they can kneel in silence, houses of God filled with God's silent presence. There, even when they do not know how to pray, at least they can be still and breathe easily. Let there be a place somewhere in which you can breathe naturally, quietly, and do not have to take a breath in continuous short gasps. A place where you can let your mind be idle, forget its concerns, descend into silence, and worship God in secret. There can be no contemplation where there is no secret. We have said that the solitude that is important to a contemplative is, above all, an interior and spiritual thing. We have admitted that it is possible to live in deep, peaceful interior solitude, even in the midst of the world and its confusion. But this truth is sometimes abused in religion. There are people dedicated to God whose lives are full of restlessness and who have no real desire to be alone. They admit that exterior solitude is good in theory, but they insist that it is far better to preserve interior solitude while living in the midst of others. In practice, their lives are devoured by activities and strangled with attachments. Interior solitude is impossible for them. They fear it. They do everything they can to escape it. What is worse, they try to draw everyone else into activities as senseless and as devouring as their own. 
They are great promoters of useless work. They love to organize meetings and banquets and conferences and lectures. They print circulars, write letters, talk for hours on the telephone in order that they may gather 100 people together in a large room where they will fill the air with smoke and make a great deal of noise and roar at one another and clap their hands and stagger home at last, patting one another on the back with the assurance that they have all done great things to spread the kingdom of God. Wow, (laughs) that's the end of that little section. This is just one tiny but juicy bit in this fabulous book, New Seeds of Contemplation. My goodness, he was speaking some 60, 70 years ago. And if anything, our world has gotten so much busier. How fascinating that this time of forced solitude on the whole world has come and we are being taught by it. Like it or not, we're getting a lesson. The lesson is something that we can really sit back and take in and learn from, or we can kind of resist. Some of us are resisting with our whole being, or sometimes I have been trying to distract myself with things like Twitter, words with friends, just doing things that are distracting in order to not face what I fear, which is found in the solitude. I also love solitude. I love coming to center and finding God there. But not all of me is used to that. Some of me wants to run from it. It's so fascinating. I don't know anyone. I've asked the old, and they can't tell me anything either, that this has never happened in their lifetime. The world has come to this sort of standstill, this sort of stay-at-home imposition that can invite us into a new kind of solitude that can birth in us an interior solitude. We can be isolated at home and be a place that is absent of all solitude as well. For many people, they've resisted, including me, for many people, they've resisted the invitation to solitude and exploration and introspection and intimacy with God. They've watched Tiger King, as I have watched Tiger King, but they've watched all the shows and seen all the movies, and tried to stay away from the quiet because it's a fearful place, and it's a place that undoes you so that you can be more known to yourself. God already knows you, but sometimes we hardly know ourselves. In solitude, you will be revealed to yourself for all the good and all of the bad and ugly And you'll get a chance to let those things come to the surface, maybe painful things, maybe woundedness. And when it comes out, you can deal with it as it really is. You can feel the feelings you really feel and deal with them appropriately and say goodbye to them. So in this period of isolation, solitude, of stay at home, of protecting each other, I pray a blessing on you that your heart and mind will be open to new ways of thinking, new ways of crafting sentences, new ways of nurturing yourself and others. Create opportunities for new discoveries in your life as you move forward during this time. If you'd like to contact me, please do so at contact at sparkmymuse.com. For a few weeks, this email wasn't working, but please feel free to contact me and I will be happy to return your email Now that I have a little more time on my hands, I'd be happy to have conversation with you. 
And be sure to stop by sparkmymuse.com. There are over 325 episodes that you can listen to during this time and draw your mind into the deeper things of your inner world. Thank you so much for listening. Please pass this episode on to a friend and make sure you stop by patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. I'm doing a series of posts on emotions. The experts have found that we have over 3,400 emotions. And during times like these, it's hard to narrow down exactly how we feel. It's hard to narrow down exactly what day it is. But sometimes understanding what we're actually feeling can really help us through these difficult times. I'll see you next week.